0: Welcome to Rugged Rants, a tough and at times a bold conversation on the future of innovation and what we can expect as work changes. I'm your host, Barry Ross, and today's episode is sponsored by Microsoft and Windows 10. Our discussion is on submersible technology and deep sea exploration. Our guest, Patrick Leahy, president and co founder of Triton Submarines. Triton designs and manufactures custom-built submarines that has enabled spectacular missions, including everything from visiting the Titanic to the first ever recording of a giant squid. Welcome, Patrick, it's great to have
1: you on the show. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm uh, delighted to be here.
0: Well, this is gonna be uh, one of our our few great shows that we always have, and it's gonna be an opportunity to, to truly geek out uh, with you, Patrick. So let's start. Uh, Probably the, the question that's biggest in my mind is, why is deep sea exploration so important to science, history, our environment? Well,
1: I think the, the obvious answer to that is, uh, if you think about the physical size of the ocean, it covers two-thirds of the planet, or 70%, I think, is the, is the figure traditionally used. And I'm, I'm told more than 90% of it is unexplored. That means that more than 60% of our planet is uh, is unexplored. It's a staggering number when you think about it. But but there's more fundamental things than that. I mean, probably most of the listeners will know that the ocean is the primary source of oxygen on Earth. So for every two out of three breaths you take, you can thank the ocean for the oxygen that you got from uh that, that, that you're taking wow. in because it came from there. We always talk about the rainforest, right? The rainforests, I think, uh, account for about 20 to 20, 20 to 30 percent of, of the oxygen. Um, the, the oceans are also our greatest uh, carbon sink. So if you think about uh, the concerns that we all have about global warming and you know, all this carbon that we're producing as a species, the ocean is the primary sink for that carbon, and the deep sea in particular. The other thing that I think people generally are not aware of how deep the ocean is. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the average depth of the ocean is more than four thousand meters. Put that wow. into uh, biblical units, that's uh, more than two and a half miles. Uh, you know, something like thirteen thousand feet. So. It's, it's a huge part of our planet that we haven't explored very much. It's also the largest habitat, not surprisingly, home to something like 300,000-plus species. <laughs> Troy. And uh, it is the greatest biodiversity. Uh, it's, it's a primary source of food for most of us. And what's interesting is the deep ocean potentially may hold... The secrets of our origins on Earth, uh, the origins of our species, there could potentially be solutions to our food and energy problems found in the ocean, and therefore, and maybe not just based on that, but uh, those are some pretty compelling reasons why I think we should be spending more time, more energy, more of our resources uh, exploring the oceans and getting to know them better.
0: those are just some incredible stats, and it's probably something I know, I just take for granted when we start talking about, you know, the ocean the sea and how important it is to our everyday lives. And, you know, when you start talking about, like, what you do in terms of designing uh, designing submersibles, you know, submarines that can carry 66 passengers or reach 11,000 meters below sea level, I mean, what are some of the basic technology considerations that you have to make. I, mean, I, I couldn't even know where to begin.
1: Well, first of all, the most important uh, driving factor behind the design of a submersible is the depth that it will be diving to. Of course, uh, the deeper you dive, the higher the pressure, and the more significant uh, we, you know, that that can be in the uh, in the design of a vehicle. So when you you think of the subs that we build that that carry huge numbers of people, they typically feature pressure hulls that are cylindrical. In some cases, like the latest one we've developed, has a transparent pressure hull made of acrylic. Um, You're diving to maybe 100 meters, about 330 feet, 10 atmospheres. So relatively speaking, that's what we would consider low pressure. That's our shallowest diving sub. By contrast, our deepest diving sub, which we launched in 2018, and we used to prosecute a historic expedition where we dived to the deepest point in each of the five oceans. Now, that sub was capable of diving to 11,000 meters. That's 36,000 feet. And to put that into perspective, into sort of terms that I think everybody can visualize, when that submarine sits on the bottom of the ocean at 36,000 feet, it's under enormous pressure. It's 16,000 PSI. But to make that more recognizable everybody knows what a 747 is you know you think of a jumbo jet giant aircraft weighs three quarters of a million pounds to to create a pressure comparable to what that sphere experiences that you're inside of at full ocean depth you'd need 292 (laughs) fully laden jumbo jets (laughs) pressing down on that sphere so it's an immense pressure you know, everybody talks about space, but in space, you deal with the absence of one atmosphere. At Full Ocean Depth, we deal with 1,100 atmospheres. Uh, it's an enormous pressure, and that is the primary driver of a design, the diving depth first and foremost. And then the number of people, and then, you know, other things are taken into consideration.
0: Yeah, I, I can tell already, uh, you just love what you do. Just listen to some of the responses. It's just... It, this is such a treat, I think, for our listeners and me because it is so beyond what we normally talk about. So I'm just you know doing something out of the ordinary and thanking you like midway through this segment. So just bear with me, Patrick. So when we start talking about like the differences between recreational and you know research and exploration, right, in terms of the industries, how do they present different technology challenges? I know we talked a little bit about it in that last question, but, it seems like they'd be just totally separate considerations technology-wise.
1: That's very true, because if you're diving recreationally, your primary interest is viewing, lighting. You know, so you've got to have plenty of light so you can see the things that are down there, and you would be focused on optimizing the view from within the pressure boundary uh, that you've built. And, you know, you you drive around, so you need some means of, of uh, you know, moving the submarine forward, backward, up and down. And so on. But when you start talking about doing science or other work activities underwater, then you need to talk about tooling and the interaction between that tooling. Say, for example, if you're a scientist, if you want to collect a fish, if you want to pick up a rock sample, if you want to do a core, if you want to take water from the depth. So, all of those things would require special tools that we would fit to the submarine. So, when we're building a submersible that's designed to support Marine science research or ocean exploration, then we would equip it with a different set of tools. Generally speaking, though, one of the primary things always with a sub is the view, because a submersible is a visual tool. It's all about how you can see, and the more, uh, the more, the more profound, the more um, effective you you make the viewing experience. The more profound that experience is, the more memorable it is for the people who, who are lucky enough to enjoy it.
0: Do you have a preference between recreational versus research and exploration?
1: No, actually, I don't, because anytime I have the privilege of going diving in a submersible, whether it's to you know do something recreationally and just explore and have fun, or whether it's to go down and do a job, I always enjoy it actually, I think probably because of my commercial diving background, I do tend to enjoy dives when I have a specific objective, you know, like go down and salvage this or go down and cut that or pick that up. It's nice to have an objective, but it's also wonderful to just, you know, explore like you're visiting a museum or something.
0: Well, that was a very diplomatic answer. So I appreciate that. So. So let's let's geek out for a second, just for our listeners, and we start talking about specific use cases. So when you start thinking about what a submarine is and does, can you tell me what that ecosystem of technology is? Can you describe it?
1: Yeah, sure. I suppose if you put it into its most fundamental, the building blocks, if you will, you have a pressure boundary, which is the thing that protects the occupants. Because one of the great things about a submersible is you sit inside of it at surface pressure. So you're not subjected to the forces of the ocean as you would be if you were a traditional diver. It's one of the great things you can go as deep as you want, stay as long as you like, no decompression. So the pressure boundary would be sort of the main first thing and that means you need life support systems to support the people that are inside this pressure structure. Then you need batteries uh, or some means of uh, providing power Submersibles differ from submarines. And actually, some people don't know this, but the definition of a sub or the difference between a submarine and a submersible, a submersible is not capable of regenerating its own power. You know, Like a military submarine either uses a diesel engine to recharge a battery bank, or in some cases, most of the big ones today are nuclear, so they have an unlimited supply of energy. A submersible has a finite amount of energy that's usually derived from a bank of batteries could be a fuel cell but mostly it's batteries and of course the battery technologies are changing so power system would be would be another thing and then of course ballast systems those are kind of important because those are the things used to get the submarine to the bottom and then to to bring it back up again and also to get it to a point where it's in a neutrally buoyant condition so you can drive around and uh and be most efficient so then i guess the other thing would be propulsion a propulsion system a means of propelling the craft through the water.
0: So, so let's take that technology ecosystem one step further. And I think you, you mentioned it like in terms of like, what does that ecosystem mean for things like monitoring, system controls, and data collection?
1: Well, one of the things that's great about the world we live in today is how much our control and monitoring capability has has improved. It used to be that, you know, we had banks of gauges and meters and panels and and so on. We still have those because in some cases there's a requirement to have um, what I think in in aircraft terminology are called steam gauges. You know, you have to have the mechanical gauges because it's a class society, a certification agency requirement. But the great thing about these new computers, and computer systems, like the ones we use in our subs, uh, are that you can consolidate all that information onto a single screen. So, for example, in the you know the tough books that we use or the tough pads, the Panasonic tough pads that we use, those things allow us to display all of the critical systems, life support systems, electrical systems. We can display cameras. We can use them for navigation, sonar displays, and effectively take every bit of information that a pilot might need and can centralize that control and monitoring interface onto a single touchscreen tablet. So it's an elegant. Simple, very straightforward interface that even a dummy like me can understand and use effectively.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I find that uh, unlikely. Uh, But you know, it's interesting because I I know we talked about this a little before, but you know, what I remember in terms of the insides of a submersible or a submarine, you know, it harkens back to the day of Jack Cousteau, right? And uh, with all the dials and the readings and stuff like that. So, uh, Puts a smile on my
1: face. Yeah, well, we still have all of that because you have to have the the fixed gauges and everything like that. But for the pilot and to streamline that interface and to make it more intuitive and frankly more capable, we can now consolidate a lot more information onto those uh, onto those touchscreen interfaces. And uh, in some of our submarines, we use multiple displays. Um, but uh, you know, the the fact is that think of how far. Uh, We've come, you know, in technology and how even if you think about something like your your phone, which, of course, you know, when you and I grew up, we we didn't have cell phones. But now today, the cell phones, uh, the capabilities that they have, well, the same thing has happened in submersibles, you know, with the computer interfaces that we use, these Toughbook uh, writing tablets, but also the sonar systems that we're using, um, the battery technologies and how those have advanced um, you know, and now we use batteries that uh, at one time we had, we were forced to use lead acid battery technology, not that there's anything wrong with wow. lead acid batteries, but the energy density available from a lead acid battery is significantly different from the batteries that we use today. Not to mention there's safety concerns, you know, hydrogen production and the possibility of explosion, additional maintenance. So now with these new batteries, these so-called rare chemistry batteries, we're getting way more energy density. Massive improvement in simplicity, reduction in maintenance, improvement in reliability, and it just goes on and on. So, in some ways, we're kind of cheating today. You know, when we build these subs, we have all these advantages. And I look back to the early pioneers like Cousteau, and I think about it, the difficulties of the things they were trying to do and the relative ease with which we can do so many of those things today.
0: You know, I think when it comes to technology, I think it's okay to use the term cheat if it makes your job a lot easier. (laughs) And it sounds like it does. And so let's kind of change the conversation a little bit. So when it comes to like the programs that you run, the scientific analysis programs, like what types of programs are those?
1: Well, you know, I'm probably not the best person to answer that. That would be the clever people on the team. But you know, we run a lot of uh, different uh, software. So, you know, the camera companies will have software that, that we have to run, the sonar will have software, the manipulator arm, even today, lighting, you know, it used to be that a light was a, a filament, you, know, you turn a switch on, you know, you energize the filament, not today. Today, they've got computer processors built into the light, you can dim them, you can control color temperature, you know, there's all these things. So, One of the things about being able to work on a a tablet computer is that you can run all these things simultaneously. You can switch between screens seamlessly. So the same screen you're using for, you know, your life support, your control monitoring of the vehicle is the same screen you're using to display your sonar or to display your videos or, or even to interface with instruments, which are just all plugged in with Ethernet. So they all get an address and that address could be for a CTD, it could be for a water sampling system, it could be for a core sampler, it could be for, you know, you name it. It's all limited by your imagination.
0: Our listeners don't uh, know this yet, and not that they have to, but uh, this, this entire interview, uh, this discussion actually, is really based on a, a white paper that we did in conjunction with Triton and Microsoft. And so one of the things that piqued my interest was the fact that there's this notion of these control systems in submarines and submersibles and the thought that you know they're called complex control systems. And so I was gonna ask you, Patrick, can you give me an example of what this complex control system is? Are there several? Is it one? What do they do? Is it a combination of systems?
1: Well, We use, uh, I think, uh, a lot of PLC uh, control and monitoring uh, systems. And again, you know, I, I would defer more to the, the technical and electronic and programming teams to probably answer that uh, you know, question more effectively. But what I can tell you is, is that it has made you know, my job as a pilot or as an instructor, if I'm teaching someone how to operate the submarine, um, much easier because you know, my access to information, my ability to interact with the vehicle um, we've also been able to create these customized uh, screens that uh, our programmers do, and uh, that make when you're when you're sitting there looking at it shows your vertical speed, it shows your rate of turn, uh, all these things that make the uh, experience of the pilot and the passengers that are that are in there as well. Um, uh, more compelling, and and also I think also you become more effective as a pilot. I, I'm not sure exactly what the programs are, and I apologize if I'm not able to answer your question. Yeah, no worries. Uh,
0: absolutely, there's, there's there's no apology needed. Again, this is just so new to us and our listeners. You uh, know, we'll take anything we can get. And so I think we talked about this next question a little bit because we talked about the use of tablets and mobile devices. And so, you know, one of the things I imagine is because you're in such close cramped spaces or smaller spaces, right, you're more confined, you know, how important is, you know, simple data input, right, And viewing that input in submersibles?
1: Well, first of all, having, having access to the information that your sensors are picking up in real time and, you know, whatever rate that it's being sampling or sampled is very important because... Uh, those sensors, you know, whatever they might be, are the thing that alerts you to either problems or a lack of uh, a problem. So uh, the, the ability to take that information in, I mean, I don't know if we sort of are inputting data ourselves, but the instruments are providing data. You know, we've got a whole range of instruments that are supplying information that gets recorded onto the hard drive of the computers and i mean i'm talking about our technicians can at the end of a dive they can go in and they can find out everything about the dive what was happening with your life support system throughout the dive you know how well you maintained your oxygen and co2 levels what the temperature and humidity was doing but also information about the the you know your heading your direction your altitude off bottom and all of those things are important uh, when it comes to doing a uh, you know sort of forensic analysis of a dive and and you know what you did where you went. Uh, so you're collecting a lot of information. The information it's you know I'm not collecting it. It's not like I'm sitting there putting the information in. It's all sort of coming in somehow magically and it's being stored in this incredible little box that that uh, that that I get to interact with. But what's incredible to me is how after a dive, the information that the, the uh, technicians can tickle out of it to uh, better understand exactly what transpired during a dive. Um, so, for example, if a scientist wants to know, okay, when you took that sample, you know, what was the exact location where you were? And they can, they can get that Latin long data. They can get your, your, uh, your specific position. And that's important because when they collect that sample, they want to know where did it come from? Um, Because without that, you know, it's it's kind of I wouldn't say it's meaningless, but it's a lot less important.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it'd be important. Uh, And I'm sure
1: driving a submarine is not like driving a car. And and so but viewing, you know, that was the other part of your question. I didn't answer it. Viewing, of course, that is the whole point of a human occupied vehicle. It's all about the view. It's all about the things you can see and the experiences that you drink in with your senses in real time. You know, uh, you can you can uh, imagine being a i don't know uh, being a bird watcher and trying to you know do bird watching with a drone it's just not the same thing as walking through that forest and hearing and listening and seeing the things that are happening uh, that's uh, i think a pretty good comparison between you know being in a human occupied vehicle and then you know instead relying on say a remote vehicle a robot that goes down robots you know they just don't cut it you, you don't get to drink in the information in the same way.
0: I, I totally agree with you. I think it's it is that personal experience. If you can see it for yourself, touch it, feel it. I think that makes that's what makes it real. Uh, so oh, I, yeah. I totally get and, it.
1: and it's and it, and it's 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 why when people come out of a submersible after making a dive, they invariably talk about how profound it was and how impactful it was. I've had many people come out of the subs honestly and say to me, that was the most incredible thing I've ever done in my life. That's a, that's a powerful statement for somebody to make, but that just goes to show you the kind of impact that a dive in a submersible you know, to a part of our world that you couldn't see any other way has on a person. You know, If you want to create ocean advocacy, no better way to do it than inside of a human occupied vehicle.
0: That's incredible. And, and so I think based on what you do as a pilot, what does connectivity and GPS look like at the bottom of an ocean floor?
1: That's a very good question. In <laughs> fact, one of our greatest challenges as uh, as people that operate vehicles that are hundreds, if not thousands of meters underwater or feet underwater, is that when you go underwater, of course, uh, radio frequencies, RF will not transmit through seawater. So uh, as soon as you go underwater, you immediately lose that GPS link that we all Take for granted when we're up on the surface whether you're in a boat or you're at home driving your car uh, we're, we're so accustomed to having that access to GPS and so once we go underwater and we don't have that GPS We have to create that information and then send it down to the submarine and, and we do that through some clever Electronics not me. I don't do it, but other people do and and what we do is we kind of trick the systems into thinking they're getting gps information but actually they're getting information that's being created on the surface and what they do is they can tell your relative position from the surface transducer uh, which does have gps and then they send that and they tell you what the the delta is so now you know exactly where you are on the bottom it's pretty clever and you know as far as i'm concerned as a pilot it looks like you know i'm following a chart on the bottom and it shows me right where I am and where I'm going, where I've got to get back to to come back up. But, you know, without the benefit of GPS, we have to we have to fake that. Yeah,
0: I uh, I'm sure it's hard enough. I can't imagine, you know, driving a submarine without this technology, without this tech connectivity that we kind of take for granted as landlubbers. So, uh, you know, I, I'd be curious to know, like, how important is real time reporting? Um, and discovery. What does that mean for submarine navigation? Because it's not like driving in the sunlight,
1: right? Very true. So, give you a great example. We were just doing these dives on the Titanic. We had to make these dives on the Titanic, and I don't know how much you know about that site, but first of all, it's at 12,500 feet, so it's pretty deep, and you're out in the middle of the North Atlantic, so you're very far away from, from anything. Fortunately, today, they have done extensive side-scan surveys of that entire wreck site. So we have a picture of the bottom, of, ev- of the entire debris field of that wreck, and we know where everything is. And what was remarkable to me on our recent series of dives that we did in the summer of 2019 was how accurately we could navigate. And that was because of the clever guys at, at our team and uh, the work that we were doing together with a company called L3 and with our computers inside the sub, we were able to, you know, you take this uh, sub that's on the bottom, and you're trying to find these targets. And we don't have GPS, but what we what we do have is we have a clever system of of modems that transmit between one another, and we can triangulate and very accurately. I mean, down to down to c- centimeters of accuracy at twelve thousand five hundred feet, or you know. Uh, what's that, 4,000, I think it's 4,000, no, 3,800 meters. And so we were able to very accurately, and what I was amazed at is we would get a target from the surface, and we'd start heading toward it, and they could tell me, take this heading, so, you know, looking on my computer, they'd say, take a heading of 240, go 200 meters on that heading, and boom, there it was. And then the next thing, I'd go over to the next target, and they were able to navigate me like air traffic control from the, you know, from... From the surface, twelve thousand five hundred feet underwater, directly to these targets, and they may not have been that that big. They may be a target as big as a as a as a chair that you sit in, but they could take me right there.
0: That's uh, that's precision driving. I'm assuming it sounds yeah.
1: like at least well, well, it's precision navigation, and you know I'm just the dummy in the sub taking it there. But they're able to give me very accurate distance, you know, sort of range and bearing to the targets. And then sometimes, you know, the targets are ones we pick up on sonar. So we switch over to the sonar screen on the computer and zoom in on the, on the target. And as you get there, you know, you get to see it through the viewport. But, uh, you know, the ability to actually go to these specific targets over the course of uh, multiple dives uh, really amazed me. And I found it was the first time that I've ever seen a navigation system work as effectively as that in, in that sort of depth of water. And I think a lot of that has to do with the creativity of the team and, and the incredible advances that are being made in technology.
0: Well, uh, I, I am sold, Patrick. I, I think that uh, everything you've talked about, I'm just, I've got a smile ear to ear listening to all this stuff. And so we've talked a lot about a, a lot of use cases, technology, and what you do. So you know maybe the next question is a little unfair, but you know what does the future of innovation look like for you and Triton Submarines? For me
1: it involves always taking people deeper into the ocean showing them the parts of the ocean that are the most difficult for you to get to Uh, that was one of the reasons the the full ocean depth triton project the triton 36002 or the uh, limiting factor sub was such an important uh, step for us because with that success we're now able to look at building other vehicles Maybe they don't go to full ocean depth, but maybe we go to half that depth or two-thirds of that depth. And with the advances that we made to develop that unique, that sort of revolutionary sub, we can now use a lot of that technology on other vehicles. So we're looking at a submarine that can carry two people and dive to 15,000 feet in a completely transparent acrylic pressure boundary that is going to be nearly 400 millimeters thick, which is something like 18 inches thick. Uh, and and that's great because you're inside of a completely transparent pressure boundary, right? So the visual experience is is powerful. I mean, it's uh, and so it's you're saying transparent,
0: like it's 360 degrees. It's yes. Just, wow.
1: That's right. And the mother of all of them, which is the sub that we've always wanted to build, but we couldn't get anyone to to, to fund. But I think we will, now that we've had the success, with the with the triton 36002 or the limiting factor in the five deeps expedition is to build a three-person sub with a transparent pressure hull made of glass So, you know people think glass Ooh, I don't know how you think of the wine glass, you know shattering on the kitchen floor But glass is an incredible material. It's inc- it's strong. It's transparent. It's a great insulator and it has a proven track record of success in the deep ocean that spans more than five decades. So the challenge, though, is how do we make a glass sphere big enough and perfect enough to put people inside of and that you can use with total confidence? So yeah, there's a few challenges in there. So I'm not sure that we're going to get there immediately. But my, my, my hope is that eventually we can build that sub. So imagine being able to go any depth in the ocean but have the visual experience that can only be afforded through a transparent pressure hall.
0: That's uh, absolutely incredible. And I'm rooting for you in Triton. So (laughs) given everything we've talked about, Patrick, what would be one thing you'd want our listeners to take away from, from this podcast?
1: I would say if I were to encourage people uh, to do one thing, it would be to take a greater interest in the ocean. The ocean is a magnificent part of our world. You know, I feel that I am incredibly privileged that I get to dive in submersibles all the time. I wish more people were afforded that that chance, but I think that if you have the opportunity to dive in a sub or to even put a mask and snorkel on and, and you know look down over a reef, I think what we need, this world needs more ocean advocacy, more interest in our oceans. Our oceans are our future, and we are dependent on the ocean. It controls our it controls our climate, it provides the oxygen we breathe, and a lot of the food that we eat. But not only that, it's the most beautiful, magnificent part of our planet. And uh, I'd like to see people taking a greater interest in it, and I'd like to see more of us uh, or more emphasis being placed on exploration.
0: For What it's worth, I hope more people think like you. Uh, I know I do. Um, And so we're we're nearing, unfortunately, the end of our time. And uh, I do have one last question for you. Uh, It's a biggie. Uh, So maybe it requires (laughs) some thought. Maybe it doesn't, you tell me. But uh, in your opinion, over the span of your entire career, what was probably the most important deep sea scientific discovery you've been part of at Triton?
1: Hmm. Wow. That is a difficult question to answer. The, the most important scientific discovery, uh, I guess, uh, well, the most important scientific discovery I could think of would probably be the filming of the giant squid that we, that we did in 2012, uh, Certainly, that was like a, uh, uh, what you know, a um, what do you call uh, people like David Attenborough? They're, they're called something. There's a type of uh, scientist. They're uh, an aha moment. like a uh, what? Yeah, well, no, it's uh, the the uh, the filming of the giant squid, which I understand. You know, they filmed from about 680 meters to 930 meters, 22 minutes in high definition. This is an animal we were hoping to just capture a glimpse of. Everybody. Knew these animals were there, and certainly pieces of them had been washed up ashore. But to actually capture the film in its natural environment over such an extended time frame was really a, a great thing. I didn't. I wasn't actually on that dive. I wish I was. Uh, for me, my most powerful moment certainly was the dive that I had the privilege of making to the bottom of the ocean uh, in May. Uh, actually, almost a year ago exactly. Uh, today it was the third of May. Uh, twenty nineteen and I had the privilege of taking a dive to thirty five
0: thousand eight hundred and fifty
1: feet. oh my God know, ten thousand uh, I think nine hundred and twenty eight meters uh, what a what a great dive that was and uh, what great validation it was for for my company and uh, you know for this concept of a vehicle that could take people to any depth in the ocean and do it repeatedly and safely. Uh, so, I think because, oh, I th- yeah, maybe for me personally, maybe the dives that we did in the uh, Java Trench, you know, filming these uh, bacterial mats, or maybe the dives that we did in the North Atlantic on the hydrothermal vents, uh, those were remarkable. I-, I made some dives in 2003 with James Cameron on the hydrothermal vents in the North Atlantic. Wow. They were fantastic. And uh, I don't know if those those weren't new discoveries. They were for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they were pretty amazing. And uh, again, I, I go back to that idea. I feel so privileged that I had those, uh, had those experiences. It's too bad more people don't get them.
0: Well, I think you've probably one of the best jobs that uh, you can be astounded almost every day. And uh, I want to thank you for being on the show, Patrick. It's been great having you here.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for taking the time and having the interest uh, to speak with me.
0: Well, unfortunately for today, uh, that's it from us. Uh, I'm Barry Ross, and that was another episode of Rugged Rants. Tune into new episodes, each a tough and bold conversation on the future of innovation and what we can expect as work changes.